And good day, everybody, and welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain. On this edition of Behind the Curtain, we're actually going to stay with politics. I usually step away a bit and go into the world of the arts and theater, but we're going to stay with politics because a friend of mine has written a very important book, the timing of which in its release, well, I just have to ask him about. Joining me today is the author of The House That Madigan Built, the record run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. That's the nickname for Mike Madigan, if you didn't know it. Ray Long joins me, a longtime reporter for the Chicago Tribune with just a magnificent book. Ray, I'm so glad we get to talk to you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on, Paul. The timing of this book, the, 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 it came out literally almost incredibly timed to the issuance of the indictment against Mike Madigan. So I have to ask, you didn't contact the prosecutors and say, wait, here's the date of my book and this would be a good day for you to indict. That didn't happen, did it? No, no, it didn't. Um, it, the funny story is that uh, I handed the guts of this book over. Uh, I had to do a couple of updates, but I, I handed the guts of the book over in January 2021. And the university press takes a while, and so I had to do some updates when there were some more movements in federal court, et cetera. And then I was disappointed when it didn't come out before Thanksgiving, and then not before Christmas. And then, you know what? It just got delayed because they were worried about uh, supply issues and all that supply chain uh, stuff that was going on that delayed everything. And so they set it for March 22nd, and uh, if you had actually put in a pre-order, you would have gotten it right around the time that uh, Madigan was indicted. So it came out uh, just about uh, the best possible time if you want to be uh, timely with a book. And if you want royalties, right? <laughs> that all ties in. Well, you've been covering Madigan since 1981. And so because you knew him better than anybody who, you know, maybe just reads the newspaper on a daily basis and have their thoughts about him, but you understand him far more intimately. Did you see an indictment coming or did you think that Mike Madigan, like one of those rare politicians, though there are some who just seem to be at least treated like they're above the law because nothing ever seems to happen? Well, everybody in Madigan's camp and Madigan have always said that uh, he is a guy who stays between the lines and doesn't cross the lines. But uh, in this case, the federal court, uh, the prosecutors have obviously said that he crossed the line. Now, uh, what I knew was about the same thing that you knew, is that the grand jury just kept churning and churning. And we had reported a few months uh, before the indictment that the grand jury was actually calling in uh, ex-lawmakers to talk about uh, how Madigan ran the House. So that meant that the, the wheels of justice were definitely still churning. So I always kept open that possibility that they could come down with an indictment. And so so you saw that it could be coming. And, of course, we also we saw some indictments, right, some comment things, things happening ahead of time. And, of course, the way I mean, as a lawyer myself, but the way these kind of investigations work, you don't go for the head of anything. I'm not saying that is ahead of anything because I don't know. But but you don't go for the head of something first. You've got to get people below because they're the ones that have to turn on the people who are above. Right. Them. Right. So, of course, as you know, we we saw that Mike McLean, his longtime confidant, had been indicted 
in uh, back in late 2020, and that had come after the uh, Commonwealth Edison had entered a deferred prosecution agreement in which they agreed to pay a $200 million fine. And in that, of course, Paul, remember it said that uh, the, the company uh, acknowledged that they had been putting people on a little or no work jobs and had actually uh, agreed to put a person on their board of directors. This is a state regulated utility. Uh, They agreed to put on their board of directors a person that Madigan wanted on there. And so uh, he was then at that point declared public official A. And then uh, it took another nearly year and a half to to come up with the actual indictment against him. Charles Wheeler, who's a journalist and a professor, um, you open the book with him. He writes the foreword for your book. And and I'm bringing it up because, you know, lots of people write forewords for books. But his description of Madigan was that Madigan always kept his word. He wanted to protect Chicago and its institutions and safeguard the legislative branch from the executive. Now, you make it clear in the book, you'll let people decide for themselves. um, But that premise of Wheeler's would suggest that, you know, Madigan was trying to do the right thing. So did you pick Wheeler because of his message or did you pick Wheeler because it's Wheeler? Well, Wheeler has the longest lens on Mike Madigan. Uh, Charlie Wheeler started with the Sun-Times covering Madigan back in 1969 when Madigan was a member of the Constitutional Convention, the the authors of the of the Constitution that we have now. And he covered him as a, a reporter for the Sun-Times for over 20 years, and he re, re, continued as a political analyst for another 20-some-odd years, still is, frankly. He's still uh, going strong on uh, public radio uh, once a week down in Springfield. So he had uh, been the director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program, continued to write columns for Illinois Issues Magazine, and had the longest perspective on him. And my view was that we should have somebody who has the long arc of history on him, particularly since he covered him during the days before he was a legis- before Madigan was a legislative leader. So uh, I thought it was important to have Wheeler's voice in there. And uh, he says, uh, even though he says all those things about Madigan, he also makes clear that uh, you may uh, get your own opinion after you uh, read these uh, chapters that uh, that I did. So and that's really how I want it to be played out. I want people to read it and, and uh, digest it and, and figure out for themselves what they think of Madigan. I have to ask you, and depending on your answer, maybe we won't tell Charles Wheeler we've done this interview um, so he doesn't hear it. What was your view of what Wheeler said when you read it? Because I assume you didn't tell him what he wrote, what he wanted to write. So when you wrote about this guy who keeps his words, wanted to protect Chicago, was your view, yeah, Charles, you got it right? Or did you think, well, that's your view? Well, I think there's I think there's uh, elements of what Charlie said that uh, can be buttressed in the book. I, uh, there are examples, for example, with uh, Jim Edgar, who I interviewed, who said once Madigan... Uh, gave his word that he would support something he would he would keep it and he would deliver the votes to pass it so i do think that there are elements that charlie wrote about that uh are definitely uh you know on on the mark uh but i do think that we have to consider the entire picture and charlie uh decided to hone in on those points 
and I've tried to give the uh, rest of the picture and uh, let people uh, figure it out as they go along. And one thing I want to make clear as well, this is not a biography of Mike Madigan. And I'll be honest, when I first heard about the book and I immediately called your publisher and I said, I, I want to read this, I want to talk to Ray, um, I figured you had written a, a, a biography. What, what, what else would anybody write? But that's not what you did. And I think it's an important point, first of all, to ask you why that was your approach. But secondly, you know, there may be a lot of people who say, I don't need to know about Mike Madigan's life. And I would say, right, so you need to read this book. Well, I thought it was important to focus on him as a public figure, and I didn't want to spend the time that uh, Robert Caro does uh, when he uh, researches a book on Lyndon Johnson and gives every in and out. I thought that I had uh, uh, seen and uh, known about enough of the key moments during uh, Madigan's time in office that these were the things that people needed to know. Amazingly, uh, to me anyway, there are people who come up to me and say, gee, I never even knew that he helped out on uh, getting the White Sox stadium built. And as you know, that's one of the uh, more fun chapters to read in the book. But you know, you could have written a very short chapter that included what Madigan eats for lunch. All you needed is the word apple. Yeah, right. I did mention that he eats an apple in the introduction. But, you know, the reality is that I, um, I, I just felt that it was important to make this book readable, and I tried to put the chapters uh, so that they would address specific issues like patronage or the impeachment of Blagojevich or the or um, the downfall of, of Madigan. Uh, and uh, I thought that those things, including White Sox, and, uh, some of his tax fights, et cetera, helped illustrate who the guy is rather than going chronologically and saying, well, uh, you remember that thing we talked about in Chapter 2? Here's how it played out three years later, et cetera. I just thought that uh, this was more readable and more approachable and could be used almost as a, as a textbook for students. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and one of the things I would also pull out, because you do tell this is a series of stories. That's the whole point. That's what I really enjoyed about it. Um, but it, when I sort of brought up eating the apple every day, the, the real, what's behind that question is, if Madigan is anything, and we're going to talk about his style in the next question, but he's a creature of habit. I mean, I can remember, I don't say the name of the restaurant, but, you know, almost every night there's a restaurant in, in um, Springfield that, that, you know, maybe some nights you went, you wouldn't go every night, but you'd go in there sometimes, but there was a table and you couldn't sit at that table. They held it every night for him because that's his table and that's his chair. And I've seen people actually at that table sometimes where they didn't eat, sit in the chair he was sitting. The man is a complete creature of habit. And I, I'm sure you know the restaurant I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would order uh, uh, usually a sparse uh, fish dinner, and uh, and he would be there at a certain time, and he would leave at a certain time, and he'd go back to his his apartment in Springfield, which is right across the street from the Capitol, and he would, you know, get up and work out on his uh, 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 machine, uh, you know, walking machine treadmill, and. Uh, then he would go to the Capitol, and he would be there early, and he would stay working throughout the day and bring in people along the way and then start all over again. And now I'm going to talk about his style a little bit, but you write that essentially he knew when to fight, he knew when to deal, he knew when to cut bait. I mean, he has, and I'll say has, he's still around, he has incredible political acuity. 
Um, and I think yeah. that's why a lot of people figured he would just never get caught doing anything. The man doesn't have an email. You don't email him at MikeMadigan.com. And, and we thought no phone calls. We learned from the indictment. Apparently, he did have like a flip phone or something. But I'm guilty, too, of on television and stuff saying, oh, he doesn't even have a phone. Most people thought he didn't. Yeah, I, you know, I, I always kind of uh, wondered about that myself because uh, I'd hear how he would use other people's phones and, uh, one person told me he gave him a phone, you know, so I've heard all kinds of different um, varieties of that explanation. So it's possible that uh, they have him on tape and it's possible that they've got something that's incriminating. But uh, obviously they're going to fight it all the way. And they said that they've done nothing wrong. So what do you say about this this image that you write about? I mean, this is, these are your words. Essentially, you're saying the man knew when to fight, when to deal, when to cut bait. His his ability. Yeah, I'm not really talking about the you know the, the phone thing, but I just mean as a style of politics. Yeah, I think he was. He, he's probably the smartest politician that's gone through the the Capitol, possibly with the exception of, of Jim Thompson. Um, that in my uh, uh, lifetime in covering politics. Now there are others that are notable, such as. Uh, 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 Barbara Flynn Curry, who is uh, one of the best debaters you'll ever find. But Madigan himself uh, would be playing uh, several moves down the board. He would uh, see things through a much longer lens. If there was a bill that came up, he could uh, understand how it might play out in one legislator's district and might advise them not to be voting for it or because it might come back and haunt them during the next election. Or he may be thinking of the long game, which is the redistricting every 10 years, where after the census, uh, the boundaries of the districts are redrawn. And he has been a master at that. And he always uh, is tilting, looking to tilt legislation to help his politics, looking to help politics tilt to help his legislation, looking to help keep him ultimately, most importantly to him, on the throne. So actually, given what you just said, I'm going to kind of not go in order of my questions as I was going to have them, because you brought up redistricting, so let's just tap into a little bit. You know, the, the, the number one question I think people wonder about since he got indicted is, all right, what happens to Springfield? Does the game change? And, and we've had several of the current leaders talk about the fact that it's a new day in Springfield, but you mentioned redistricting. Madigan was the master of it. Um, he, you know, since the early 90s, has always been able to keep power uh, with the Democrats. And I mean, after the, the, they, you know, they had trouble doing that in, in the 90s. Um, but then you look at his successor, Speaker Chris Welch, who has said it's a new day in Springfield. What did you observe as we went through the redistricting process this year, which governed things for the next 10 years? Did you see Madigan tactics being in use or did you see a new day? Oh, no, I, I think they, they stretched it even harder than Madigan because they were trying to help the national scene where there were so many Republican tilted states that were were tilting their congressional districts so that they would go more Republican. In Illinois, uh, they were trying to tilt it as, uh, to max out the number of potential Democratic seats that they could pick up, uh, all with the goal of trying to keep Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House in Washington. So I didn't see them scaling back and going to this so-called fair map, the one that J.B. Pritzker said that he was going to support that 
type of fair or uh, more bipartisan approach to uh, redrawing the lines. I saw them going out full tilt Democrat, and they did that in their legislative districts, too. You know, the the Senate is a super, super majority uh, Democratic tilt, and um, they still uh, went all out to uh, keep their uh, big uh, majority in in the Senate, and they uh, worked it in the House, too, to keep their majority there and try to stretch it and make it bigger. So I didn't see this uh, grand change in the uh, in the uh, greediest game in town, which is uh, trying to get as many seats as you can for your party. And this question might be speculative, but do you think they just had learned enough from Madigan that they knew how to play the game? Or do you think perhaps that Madigan was coming? Mean, they certainly used his lawyer, Michael Casper. I mean, there were other players in this, but do you, do you think that they, they used Madigan in, in their efforts to do what they were doing and still involved him, even though maybe it was all below the radar? Well, uh, I, I just don't know the answer to that. I, it's hard to believe that they couldn't have uh, felt a few times that they should reach out. But even if they didn't, they had all of his uh, map cartographers out there uh, drawing the lines and using his methods. And, you know, it is so sophisticated now uh, that um, we've gotten to the point where we we're way past the kind of paper shuffling where you uh, try to put everything down and get it down on on paper and and just write it up. We're into heavy duty computerization where you can draw the lines around houses on the streets where to keep somebody in or out of a district. So it is a very sophisticated game, and uh, as long as the computers keep getting better and better, you're going to see the lines drawn more sharply and more tilted one way or another. And I imagine while the redistricting piece, that's a look ahead for 10 years, because these are the maps we'll live with, uh, the state will live with for 10 years. But at the same time, as you mentioned, they were even taking majorities beyond what they needed to. And and that's just because, you know, things can change uh, in a bit on a dime. So they're also looking to buck things up even for the next two years and the next four. Right, right. You'll remember, Paul, you kind of referenced that in 1994, the Democrats lost the House. That was the only time Madigan lost the House once he became Speaker in 83, all the way up to last year when he was booted by his own party. But um, what happened in 94 after Madigan lost was Democrats regrouped. They took aim at six uh, districts in the southern suburbs of Chicago that had been Republican, and they went after them, and they won them, and they won the House back so that their majority suddenly uh, went to the slimmest that you can have, which is six, uh, let's see, 60 to 58, and then they just kept building on that in the next years after. So uh, they know what they've got to do. I mean, this is part of of how Madigan would think strategically and think of the long game. He he had people and he studied demographics and the demographics were changing enough that they thought that they could grab those districts. They went after him and they won. And it seemed that for Madigan, politics got very personal. Uh, you know, you see that with, and I'm not throwing a, a, a 
this comparison to, for the purpose of a comparison, but, you know, Donald Trump is often seen as somebody who gets very personal with things. If you're not loyal to him, he turns on you. Um, he might even endorse you until he doesn't and all those kinds of things. And Madigan always kept his word with regard to legislation. But it's also true, isn't it, that if you if you did something he didn't like, you paid the price. And in one case, Scott Drury was the representative who I re- recall, um, didn't do what he was supposed to. And when everybody got a crystal clock, recognizing Madigan as, you know, the, the, the elected official of all time, um, Scott Drury didn't get a clock. Yeah, as I recall, he did not vote for Madigan for speaker that year. Yeah, he that was it. voted present or he voted uh, against him. But anyway, he did not vote for him. And uh, everybody else did in the caucus, and they all got a clock. And uh, there are other instances like that over the years, dating back into the 80s. I can remember a guy named Dick Montino, who was the father of Frank Montino, who's now the Auditor General and was a legislator for years. Uh, Frank voted present one time and uh, on whether Madigan should be speaker or not, and Madigan uh, took his chairmanship away. Back then, it didn't matter when uh, you lost the chairmanship because the pay was the same, but now if you do something like that, this chairmanship's come with a $10,000-plus stipend. And here's a name I won't, if you know the name, you can say it if you want to. I'm I'm not going to say it. But there was a a representative who said something negative about uh, this uh, part of the speaker's family or something. And Madigan then basically turned on him and he lost his next election. I I, I won't say the name while we're recording because I don't want to. You're talking about a Republican. You're talking. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. And the reality was uh, you don't uh, attack the speaker's family. You uh, with uh, uh, the kind of things that they were attacking. And you saw that also with Rauner, too. Um, Governor Rauner threw millions and millions of dollars into attack ads against uh, Madigan, and he uh, definitely felt that he was defamed by uh, Rauner and that his family was defamed by Rauner, including the Attorney General uh, Lisa Madigan, too. And he made that clear a, a few weeks ago, I had, uh, run, uh, had acquired a, a videotape of, of Madigan's uh, deposition in a in a civil case, and they talked about Rauner, and you could you could just see in his face that uh, he uh, was uh, still angry, and uh, he was angry about how Rauner had uh, blasted uh, Madigan for. Uh, practically four years of of uh, raining down, uh, uh, calling uh, the speaker corrupt without offering specific proof or anything like that. So it was, uh, there was a kind of blood feud between uh, Madigan and Rauner for sure. So in fairness to Mike Madigan, because um, he looks like he's the guy who's just, you know, he's old politics, he's old machine as well. He should be because he learned from Richard J. Daley. But the truth is Madigan changed through the years. I mean, he, he was a social conservative years ago, and he eventually became liberal. He knew how to read the pulse of a changing Illinois. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that, Paul. And I think what's going on there is that he um, would see what was good for his politics and how to hold his majority as much as he would uh, see whether it was good for Illinois. For example, uh, you saw him 
uh, vote as a social secu- uh, conservative on abortion issues for years. And then eventually he uh, supported uh, an expansion of abortion rights. You saw him vote for gay marriage, um, and he cited uh, Pope Francis saying, uh, you know, who am I to judge? Madigan said that on the floor, so he supported that. You saw him also when the courts said he, uh, Illinois had to go with concealed carry because it was the only state in the nation that didn't allow it. Uh, Madigan, who had opposed such an idea for years and years, decades, suddenly came on board and helped forge the the proposal that made it happen. So he um, also had a quote that I came across, um, and it was very interesting, where he said, I don't put an adjective in, in front of the uh, my description of myself as a Democrat. I don't call myself a conservative Democrat, a moderate Democrat, or a liberal Democrat. I consider myself a Democrat. And by that, I believe that he was showing that he could be flexible and move the way his caucus moved and and also, ultimately, keep himself with support of the caucus. And holding the speakership was his number one goal. And I have to let you tell I mean, the, the, the book is full of stories. That's what's charming about it. And you know my favorite story. I, I asked you to tell it briefly on TV, but I, I can. I got to have you tell it again here because it's just it's my favorite Madigan story. And it's the White Sox, Kaminsky Park story, when literally, as you write about it, Madigan had the magical power to stop time. Yeah, it's it's one everybody loves to hear and loves to read. It's the uh, night in... in uh, 1988, when it was June 30th, and they were running out of time to pass the White Sox uh, legislation that would have uh, uh, put some taxes on on, uh, mostly uh, rental cars and hotels so they could try to collect the uh, fees from people coming in, tourists, etc. And so here we go. Thompson, Jim Thompson was governor. It was uh, 4 p.m., and he came into the uh, office after being out and looked around, and they were all glum. And they said, look, the White Sox, they don't have the votes. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. He goes charging up to Senate Minority Leader Pete Phillips' office, and they start pulling Republicans into the office and start cajoling them, and Thompson's telling them it's personal. I really want to keep Chicago with a a two-baseball club town. So um, they finally got enough votes, they thought, and Phil Rock, the president of the Senate, the Democrat, called the bill, and it was late in the night, and it was around 11, and it took a long time to debate, and finally they got all the votes they needed, 30 in the Senate, and and uh, Thompson goes charging across the rotunda, literally running across the rotunda, and the uh, House put the bill up, and Madigan was running back to get his uh, set of, of uh, uh, names of people who might uh, be swayed to vote for it, and he's running around in his darkened room because he's got one of his daughters sleeping on the couch in there, and uh, he pulls the the uh, list up and he runs out onto the House floor. Steve Brown, his spokesman, just recently said it was the only time he ever saw Madigan run, and so he was going from desk to desk among Democrats 
convincing them that they should vote for this White Sox bill, and Thompson was going from desk to desk among Republicans, and it was running way, way late. They were running right up to the deadline, the midnight deadline, and um, Charlie McBaron was a, uh, a sport, <laughs> he was uh, a radio broadcaster, and he was uh, reporting it magnificently, like it was a, a Blackhawks uh, World Championship game here, telling about how Thompson was twisting arms and how they were appeared to be cutting deals right there on the floor. And anyway, they they got up to maybe three or four votes short, and it looked like it was clearly past uh, midnight. And the Democrats had disabled the clock, so you couldn't see what time it was. And uh, <laughs> Charlie McBaron says, "I don't know what." clock they're using here but but they they certainly are coming up here past midnight and uh sooner or later they're going to have to take a vote well they finally traded back and forth they got down to one vote thompson goes over the uh uh desk of James Stang, a Republican from the suburbs, and, and waves at uh, the speaker, and, and the speaker and the chair, Jim McPike, says, calls on him, and, and uh, they go 60th vote, and the place goes mad. And then uh, it, while the opponents were all singing, na, 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 hey, hey, hey good, I, all, of the, all of a sudden, McPike says, Bam! It's eleven fifty nine, and the bill passes. And so <laughs> we we all run up to grab the roll calls, and the roll calls uh, say twelve oh three. And so Thompson, who's practically levitating off the floor at that time, goes to a scrum of reporters, and and he and uh, one of the reporters was really pressing him, saying, you know, it was after midnight. He says, was not. Yes, it was. Was not. Yes, it was. Was not. And no court in the land is going to to uh, rule against us. And so when it went to court, no judge ruled against it. And in fact, Paul, there was a, a judge in, in uh, Florida that said, you know, there's only been two occasions where time has stood still once in the uh, Judeo-Christian Bible and once in the minutes of the Illinois House of Representatives. So <laughs> it was one wild and crazy night, and um, that's how the White Sox got there. Now you can argue whether it was cheating or not or whether Madigan knew how to, to bend the rules and, and, and did what he could and saved the Sox from going to Florida. And, well, and you know... And- the fact that the that the report record says twelve oh three and stuff, I don't quite get. Is that because the, you know the Illinois courts essentially democratic in their nature too? I mean, to me, if you look at a document that says twelve oh three, you have to look and go, this is beyond twelve oh three. And why did Manigan, you know, couldn't he pass any kind of a resolution or something that would extend the the, the time of the session or something? No, there's a de- there was an absolute deadline at midnight that uh, if you didn't pass that bill by midnight, then it would take a three-fifths vote to pass it. So what, the that. only thing they could do was, uh, was uh, you know, disable the clock. And obviously they did, didn't disable it on the, on the roll call. The roll call came out at 12.03, but the twist that they depended on was what was declared by this the person with the gavel and Jim McPike the majority leader for Madigan was in the chair and he slammed it down and declared it was 1159 so that's what counted and that's what the judges looked at 
There you go. Absolutely incredible. What I love about that story is that I'm, we're not going to walk through all the stories because, number one, we don't have time. Number two, I want people to read the book. They can read about Operation Cobra uh, in 1989. There's yeah. so many great stories, and people should read it. So what I want to do is shift gears a little bit, just a couple more questions. I don't want to abuse your whole day here. And no, no, no. It's fun. It's, well, we'll go on for hours then. No, it's, so th- what I love about this is that, you know, we keep talking about Madigan's power and Madigan's control, and it's fair enough to talk about it, but we shouldn't ignore everybody who surrounded him. And what I mean by that is that what you write is that essentially anything that came into the General Assembly, everybody had to start with the question, well, what does Madigan think about this? And the answers truly revolved his answers really revolved, as you write, were whether or not what they were going to do was right for politics. Was it right for the particular politician? Maybe somebody who was up for reelection? Was it good for the people? So, you know, talk about the fact that everybody else had to plug into what he was thinking. And has any of that changed under a different speaker now? Well, I think it has changed. Um, and yes, just to talk about Madigan first, uh, the reality is that he had the ability to give the green light to legislation when it came to his chamber or put the red light thumbs down on on a bill. So um, when, for example, Republicans controlled the governorship and the Senate, uh, there might have been, there was legislation that was uh, uh uh, passed that uh, did not uh, do favors for Chicago, but when it got to the House, Madigan could be the stopper of things that uh, trial lawyers and labor didn't didn't want to see go forward. He could be their stopper, and and that's part of how his his legend grew, also because he could he could uh, handle whatever came his way and whatever his. Uh, supporters didn't want, he wouldn't let go forward. Um, And then has it changed? I believe from the people I've talked to that there is more openness in uh, the legislature now. There are more people who feel that they have a chance to argue for the for the merits of their bill, it's still obviously uh, heavily til- tilted toward Democrats. So uh, the Democrats are going to ultimately get their way. But there is a feeling, at least from the people I've talked to, that there is more of a willingness to at least get a bill a hearing or at least uh, uh, get things uh, so that you can argue it or discuss it rather than just see it bottled up from the very beginning. Well, I think it's interesting, too. I think Jim Durkin, and it might have been the redistricting issue he was talking about, but he actually said for all that he complained about under Madigan, he had more of a listen. He got listened to more under Madigan than he is now uh, under Welch. I don't know if that's true or maybe it's just a political statement because that's where we are today. Well, that, you know, he would have a better feel for it than I would because he's right there in the middle of it. So I would, uh, you know, defer to him on, on his particular issues. I have heard that the lower rank and file folks, the folks who used to be called mushrooms because uh, people jokingly said they lived in the dark down there, um, have had more of a chance to at least be heard on some of their issues. 
And, you know, when, when you look at Madigan's defense, it, it looks like with every all the stuff he's being accused in of the, what, 100-plus pages that, that come against him, he boiled it all down in defense. It says, hey, all I did was recommend some people for some internships. So, um, you know, that's what yeah. my, when that happened. But where my mind went, it's to the Richard J. Daly thing. Because Richard J. Daly was all about patronage and the patronage army. And Madigan certainly lived that way. And it's almost as though he's locked in time by looking at this entire indictment and saying, hey, all I'm doing is helping get people jobs as though it's still the days of Richard J. Daly. Yeah, I, I think you definitely see the echoes of Richard J. Daly and his moves in Madigan's moves over the years. And when uh, things like the uh, Shackman decrees came into place and the kind of sister law uh, rulings came into place in the state called Rutan decision, um, you uh, saw some um, restrictions that uh, really kind of uh, made uh, folks like Madigan explore more uh, private industry and trying to place people in private uh, groups, and that's where I think you saw him uh, reaching out into places like ComEd, which were supporters of him. But but the question becomes: Did he cross the line? Did he do too much? And uh, is it's the question really is not whether what he did was uh, fundamentally right or or wrong, because a lot of people would say, well, he was clouding in kids to internships when people who had better grades and deserved a better shot altruistically uh, would be more eligible for those jobs. But um, they didn't get him because he put his own people in, whether they were hacks or not. And um, the idea that he would uh, push for people to have little or no work jobs, he would say, well, I didn't know that they weren't going to do any work. I was pushing them for jobs that they, uh, for jobs uh, for ComEd to, to carry them. But uh, the, the idea also that uh, he could push for a director on a state-regulated utility of that um, may be one that Joe Lunchbox can relate to more than anything. And so uh, he's he's uh, definitely going to use the old line that, hey, I was just recommending jobs, but uh, the question is whether he was doing more than recommending and whether uh, the company just feared that uh, if they didn't toe the line with Madigan, they wouldn't get what they uh, wanted with their legislative agenda. And, of course, we'll see how all that plays out, certainly in the months and, and years to come. I guess finally, Ray, I want to ask you sort of a broader look as we, you know, assuming people, they get the book, they read the book, they read all the stories, and we, we talk about whether it's a new day. So here, here's the clearest way I can try and ask this question, which is, you know, when Richard J. Daly uh, passed away and when he left the office of mayor, someone said, ah, the Daly days are over and all that. And then it's arguable whether or not there were different versions of machines after him, including his son, Richard M. Daly. And, you know, one could even argue, did Rom have a machine and all that? Maybe machine isn't the way, doesn't mean what it used to. But the question in your context of Madigan, with Madigan gone, and I'm back to something I asked earlier, this notion of it's a new day in Springfield. But the question is, do you, as you see what's going on, do you see this as a continuation with new personalities of the way things were under Madigan? Or do you say, no, it, it is a new day, and maybe it's going to be a different machine to replace it, but things are different. I mean, the passage of time does impact things. 
Yes, I think you're right. I think one thing that we're seeing now that uh, we haven't seen for a long time is a great vacuum uh, over who is really the leadership uh, in the Democratic Party. You've got uh, uh, a mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, who is in her first term. Uh, You've got a governor, Governor Pritzker, who is in his first term. Uh, Chris Welch is in his first term as House Speaker. Robin Kelly is in her first term as Democratic Party chairman, and you've got Don Harmon, who is relatively new in the Senate president position. All of this is different from the the Madigan days, where you uh, had long-time tenures in almost all of those positions. And so there's going to be, at some point, Uh, some clarity here as to whether it's better to have more diffuse power or whether we will regrow into a bigger, uh, bigger type of machine that uh, we used to see in the past, but it's going to take a while and we're going to be shaking out who actually becomes the, the uh, big boss if there is one. And I, I love ending with that question because really the only way to answer that question meaningfully, not just on your part, but for readers there and, and our, my listeners to sort of have that same sense is they got to read this book because it's what informs all of that. We look at the past and the stories and what happened, and we let that inform us as to what may happen in the future. The book is The House That Madigan Built, the record run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. For those who don't know, that was his nickname, uh, or, or is his nickname, The Velvet Hammer. And Ray Long, uh, of course, you've been with the uh, an investigative reporter with Chicago Tribune forever, but I forgot to mention you're a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I should have mentioned that. And if this book gets the Pulitzer Prize, please thank me in your speech. I, I shall. I'll make a point of that, Paul, all right? You can even come along. <laughs> I will. I might, you might turn around and go, what, what happened to bring all of Chicago. It'll be a party. <laughs> I love it. The book, The House of Madigan Built. Ray Long, congratulations. This is really just an important uh, addition to the dialogue and the conversation on the impact of Mike Madigan. It couldn't have come out at a, at a, a, a more impactful time. I congratulate you on that, even though you can't take credit for that particular piece. But you can take credit for a book well written. Thank you, my friend. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me on. I appreciate it, and I had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you. Me too. Appreciate it. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.